0: Karen, starting a new series this morning on Sunday mornings on the church and this morning we want to talk about who we are. see it's interesting as you look in the scriptures, the word witness is typically not used in the New Testament as a verb we often think about witness it's used as a noun it's it's who we are It's more than simply what we say. It is who we are. And I thought about you. And as I watch you as the church, um, as you love people and as you serve our Lord. And I thought about, you know, the youth are headed out this week to camp down in South Carolina. Huge camp and be a great blessing. Keep them in prayer. A wonderful team of people who love the teenagers have vested their lives in them. And have a chance to spend that week with a focus on our wonderful Lord. And uh, remember Alex of Begley's, he's part of the state baseball team as they're headed to Richmond to be in the tournament. And and I, I thought about David Sizemore, pastor at Norfolk Avenue Baptist Church. who's the coach of that team and who has a heart for, for those young men as they play baseball. And. And a plug for them, I think they're always searching for support and prayers for the baseball team, whether it's, you know, financial or emotional. And, and keep that in mind as they head down there if you want to be a part of that support. And and I thought about, uh, I caught word, probably embarrassed Greg, that he's, he's going to pick up Alex to take him from the uh, to camp, you know, trying to coordinate all these schedules for the youth camp. All this is ministry. All this is a part of what it means. For us to be the church. And with that said, let's let's open our scripture to Matthew 16 this morning. And I actually want to start at verse 13 and go through verse 18. And I want to ask you to stand in our God's honor as I read aloud from his precious word. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let's pray. Dear master, we bow before you. Because you are our hope, Lord, as a. Tim mentioned in Sunday school, you know, when we're down and we're out and, and uh, we don't know what to do, there's nowhere else to go but to you. Just like the disciples said, where else can we go, Lord, but to you. And this morning, as we look at the fact of who we are, that we rest ourselves in the foundation of Jesus. Lord, I pray you speak to our hearts, take the weakness of my words, and Holy Spirit, speak way beyond what I can say. May we hear from you, Lord. We want to continue to lift and elevate you, the living God, and not ourselves. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you anoint and that you work in our time that remains. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. On June twenty sixth, two 2015, the Supreme Court of our land... Five unelected judges passed a law that changed in our land forever. The definition of marriage no longer between a man and a woman, but between a man and a man or between a woman and a woman. But it may be what was even greater a tragedy than that specific decision was opening up. A decision of how in the future things are to be handled. One of the great arguments of that case was that decisions based on any moral judgment were inadmissible and irrelevant. In other words, there there was no authority in our land by which to seek guidance. Turn over just a couple of chapters to Matthew chapter 19. In verse 6, I'm going to start at verse 5. Jesus shares these words. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus gives a clear guideline of what the most intimate of relationships. How it's to be designed. Where a, a man leaves his father and mother. And he is united to his wife. Where male and female become one flesh. No longer two, but one. And he says this statement where he says what God has joined together. What his design is. Let not man separate. Let not man deviate from. Let not men change. You see, when we lose sight of God's design in the ship of life, not only do we throw away the oars, not only do we tear down any cell that could be used or any compass, we even throw away the life jacket so that there is nowhere to go. In other words, there's confusion through our land. In that case, another Supreme Court justice wrote this dissent. I quote, this will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. The implications of this analogy to human rights will be exploited by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of this dissent. So, so where do believers go? Where, what, what is the church supposed to do? When we lose the oars, when we lose the sail, when we even lose the life jacket in our society, in our culture, in our nation, in our land. What's interesting is you go back to the days when the book of Matthew was penned. It was a land not that different from today. Matter of fact, uh, a person would be considered quite prudish that saw Marriage between a man and a woman as the design and the confines of the most intimate of relationships. There was homosexuality and there were many other forms of sexual um, deviation that occurred. Matter of fact, what was normal for that day was bisexuality. And so, what does what does Paul say in the scriptures? As you look in First Timothy chapter three, as you look in the book of Titus, he says that that the leader, that the elder of a church, is to be the husband of but one wife. The term literally refers to being a one woman man. That that was countercultural. In that day, that qualification that stood out in a land and in a culture where that was mocked, where that that seemed to be closed-minded, and yet that was God's design, and these people would set themselves aside for that design. He said, we must be a people that follow God's truth. Uh, Some of you may remember a philosopher and apologist from Switzerland that was popular A generation ago by the name of Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer was fond of saying as he preached in America. That someday the church would wake up and find that the America we once knew was gone. Edwin Lutzer of Moody Bible Church says that day is here. And it's hard not to agree with him as we look around us. It is a significant time for the Church of Jesus Christ to clarify her role, to clarify what she believes, to clarify her mission and her purpose as the gospel, her character in a world that desperately needs hope. I want to preach this series of messages. We're going to look at some of these areas today who we are, why we belong, what we believe, what we don't believe, how we behave. Why we're accountable to holy living, how we disciple, how we discipline, how we mobilize, what we're looking forward to as a church. Let me emphasize an observation before we jump into the text as I look around at our culture. There's either conviction that leads to clarity or there's chaos that leads to confusion. Confusion let me say that once again. There's either conviction that leads to clarity, or there's chaos that leads to confusion. Romans fourteen twenty three, the last part of the verse in the Amplified Bible, you know, so it takes that one sentence and makes it a paragraph, says, For whatever does not originate or proceed from faith is sin. That is, whatever is done without a conviction of its approval by God is sinful. So the principle there is it must originate, it must proceed from a confident trust in the living God. If it doesn't, it's sin. It must be a turning to the living God. There must be a sense of conviction or there will be a sense of confusion and chaos will reign throughout the land. You see, chaos and confusion simply reveals that sin is at the helm. The presence of conviction in a society That certain things are sacred. Reveals that faith. Is at the helm. But it's not just blind faith. In any God. Or in any person. Any organization. It's a specific faith. In the living God. And that's what we want to examine. This morning. First we want to look at the fact. That we are mastered. By an unrivaled. Master, Let's look at our text back in Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Caesarea Philippi. This region was very significant. Because there were 14 temples to the ancient Baal God. And there was a cavern nearby that was known as the birthplace of Pan, the god of nature. And also not far away, there was a magnificent white marble temple that was a place to worship the deity Caesar that was built by Herod the Great. And in this place of religions, in this place of many gods, Jesus comes and he asks this very significant question. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And look at their reply. They reply, some say John the Baptist, a man who preached repentance, who the people listened to and their hearts were moved. Some say John the Baptist who lost his head literally for his faithfulness. Others say Elijah, the one that they knew through the scriptures that would return, that would prepare the way for the Messiah. And still others, Jeremiah. And there was a tradition at that day where Jeremiah actually had hidden the Ark of the Covenant in a cave and that he would come back to life and that God would bring him forth to lift the Jewish people to victory and to once again be set free from the Roman Empire, those persecutors and that suffering that occurred. Where it's just maybe just one of the other prophets. And then verse fifteen, what about you? Yes. Who do you say I am? Guys, that's the most significant question that there is. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? How you answer that question will determine your life for all eternity, for all of time. Um, As he asks his disciples, do you think I'm a prophet? Do you think I'm a good man, a good motivational speaker, you know, a teacher, somebody that helped other people, you know, did a lot of ministry? Uh, Who am I? Notice what Peter says. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This declaration reveals two very important things. First, he is the anointed Messiah. The one who is to come. Secondly, that he was nothing less than deity. If you take the Greek, it's ten words. Four of those words are the definite article. To give a a sense of the definite truth. It says, you are the Christ. It could be translated, you are the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. You are the unrivaled and unequaled God in the flesh. You see, he isn't just a teacher. He's the eternal word, the logos of deity who spoke the worlds into existence. He isn't just a man. He's the God man, fully God, fully man at his virgin birth. God, so that He can forgive us. Man, so that He can die for us. And He isn't just a nice, positive thinking, golden rule giver. He's the coming judge of all mankind. That's that's what the Scripture tells us. In this day of our culture, there there are those that want to purport the message that we're evolving and and that we've grown past this old notion of a single deity and the idea of moral judgment that awaits all of us. But they missed. They've missed God. And He is coming. And so is His judgment for those who miss Him. Look at Peter as he says in verse 18, as he shares, he says, or our Lord as he shares, he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And in other words, he says, but I say to you that you're Peter, you're a little rock, you're, you're a pebble. And upon this pebble, upon this little rock, there will you will be placed upon an immovable rock, a bedrock, which Christ, of course, is referring to himself. He's saying you're a little rock that will be placed upon the great foundation that will hold all. Me. Me. Peter would later write in his book, his letter of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, describing all of God's children as little rocks who make up the building of God. As we are placed on the rock of rocks. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He's the rock, his word is perfect. 2 Samuel 22, verse 2: The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Psalm 18:31, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock? But our God. And he shares that he is the bedrock. And that the gates of Hades shall not overpower his church. That he builds. Now you see the gates were placed inside the fortified doors of a walled city. It was the town hall of the ancient world. Where plans would be designed by the city fathers. Where strategies would be advanced and determined. For that city. The word that is used here for church is ekklesia. Means called out. Or it means to be summoned. You see he's our builder. He's our maker. He's our defender against the underworld. He's our master. He's our Lord. He's unrivaled. He is the bedrock of our faith and we are to be standing on the rock and not act as if we're clinging to a piece of driftwood that's just going to float by he is the unrivaled master foundation secondly we're messengers of an unchanging manifesto here's how webster defines manifesto a written statement declaring publicly the intentions motives or views of its issuer paul as he shares to timothy in first timothy three fifteen, calls the church a pillar And the foundation of truth. The church is a pillar and foundation of truth. In a land of confusion and chaos. We need a foundation and pillar of truth. And that is to be the church of Jesus Christ. Built upon the foundation that no other man can lay. But the foundation of Jesus Christ. That one foundation alone. It tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. In other words, when we come to Christ within us. There is a divine power power and it gives us what we need guys to live it gives us what we need for life it gives us what we need for goodness so that there is a moral truth that flows out of our lives and it comes not from us but it comes from him his own glory and goodness that becomes ours we don't make this stuff up this is not our opinion this is the message of our lord As one author put it, we're called to be people of the truth. Even when the truth isn't popular and even when the truth is denied. God's truth has not changed. The scriptures have not changed. The gospel of Christ has not changed. It's still the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That's his word. That's his word. As we look at our nation in these times, one author described three types of Christians that are predominant in our society. The first he describes as cultural Christians. These are the ones that say, am I a Christian? I'm an American, aren't I? There's no real meaning behind the idea of being a Christian other than, well, it's just who we are in America. I'm just a Christian. But no real tie. Uh, He estimates that's probably 25% of those who profess to be Christians Secondly, they're congregational Christians. These are the ones that show up at church. These are the ones Vance Havner used to call Holly and Lily Christians. Christmas and Easter, you know, that, that show up. But there's no real connection beyond coming for an hour a week on a Sunday morning. No connection to He is my Master. He is my Lord. He is the one who is in charge of my life. It's just a loose connection to a church. But not a true connection to Jesus Christ. Who is the very foundation of the church. It's more than attendance. And that leads us to the third type of Christians. And these are the ones that are so needed. It's the convictional Christians. It's where there is conviction that what we do comes because of God's approval and his approval was placed upon Christ as he hung up on that cross. And so to want his approval means Christ, to want to glorify Christ in everything we do and everything we say and even in who we are. A.W. Tozer, he once wrote in one of his messages, he said a lot of sermons are nothing more than the preacher's unwillingness to get himself into trouble. Tozer reminded his generation, and we need to be reminded in the day, that preachers are not diplomats delivering compromises. They are prophets delivering old Emmaus. We live in a day where there are all these commercials, advertisements for church, where there are sermons that are... They're, they're energetic sermons that are not boring that'll keep you awake and and the music it's inspirational and and moving it brings deep emotions but what my heart yearns for is that a a church would be described as as a place where there is a, a a confident trust in God's word and and that God's speaker would be filled with the Spirit of God and long to be able to share with you what is in this book or more who is in this book who is Jesus Christ it's, it's more than just inspiration it's more than just perspiration it's revelation that we need and as far as music goes that's true to the character and the nature of God it's more than just move us and how we I can't dance so don't worry about that we shake more than just moves us, but moves us to follow Jesus. To, to move us when we come out of this building to be salt and light in this community. Reminds me of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. If you read verses 14 through 21, uh, he, he basically says, I bow my knees before the Father. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. To be strengthened with power through His Spirit. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. And the good news in this day of confusion and chaos. Is we have a conviction of a Savior. Who loves us. He died for us. He was raised to life. He intercedes. He prays for us. And He empowers us for life and godliness. Not of us, but of Him as He works. Um, one commentator wrote No lighthouse was ever built to get rid of a storm, <laughs> no lighthouse was ever constructed with the idea heavy winds would run away and hide. Its very purpose was to shine in the middle of the storm and offer a way home to those who look for its light. So if you see a storm brewing, that's not a signal you failed or that you're no longer needed or that you need to turn off the light or turn it down. Don't give up. Stay the course. Keep shining. Amen. A few years ago in Beijing... um, there were the world championships and the 10,000 meters, a female athlete was running and it looked like she had third place wrapped up. She was three feet away from the finish line and she started celebrating. Yes! And as she did, she didn't see the competitor in the inside track who passed her and got third place. USA Today, there was a picture of her. She had her head. Head in her hands. And she was crying. And she spoke these words. She said. The she said Olympics. They are a hard race. She said. This probably won't ever come around. For me. Again. What happened? She started celebrating. Too soon. She got off stride. And the person who was running. Ran past her. Church. Don't give up. It looks like. Now That. God is losing. And that the church is is dying and not alive many times in our minds. That's a message that is constantly given to us through the media. But world, don't celebrate too quickly because Jesus is coming back. And Jesus is the victor. And the gates of hell of Hades will not prevail against His church because of the work of the gospel that Christ has done. This is who we are. This is our call. And I encourage you guys, be in prayer. This Wednesday, Bob Foy and Phyllis Foy are going to come and they're going to encourage us with some training as we look out in September and as we start the church renewal journey together. And, and I hope God so works. There's a number, these six or eight of these church renewal weekends, that God will grab a hold of our hearts, guys. I, I think of Psalm fifty-one, twelve, where David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Man, if you're like me, you need to be restored. You know, look like you've been baptized in pickle juice, right? Ugh. I mean, I heard Jerry at the, the other night it caught my attention. Jerry Hyder, we had our uh, time together over at the Power Supper Club. And he said he got in trouble at work because the boss told him, you're just too happy. You shouldn't be happy around here. This is not a place to be happy. Wouldn't that be great as Christians? If that's what we got in trouble for? What is it that you're so happy about? I'm glad you asked. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the foundation of our faith. We want our lives to be a conviction of the approval of God. And that approval was shown at Calvary through our Lord. Father, our land's in chaos, Lord. There's confusion, Lord. But praise be to God that our conviction is not a false conviction. It's based on the guy who was dead and he's alive. He's more than a guy. He's God. He's Jesus. And I pray this morning, Father, as our altars open... That you would bring people to pray at the altar of God. That you would deal with us right where we are, Lord. Maybe some of us who know you need to be woken up, Father. Maybe others of us, we just never understood. Just never understood the gospel before that we're sinners and we need you, the one who died for us. And they call us to live for you. Father, I just pray that we would respond to you this morning as we stand, as we sing. Father, may we say yes to your spirit as you speak. Because, Father, this is far more than just a gathering of people. This is a gathering of your people who want to see you move among us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.